been over a year since the first COVID case was discovered in the United States, resulting in a pandemic that has sickened millions of Americans and, as of this recording, has been blamed for almost 600,000 deaths. Historically speaking, pandemics change things. A 14th century English clergyman recorded how, in the wake of the Black Death, workers, quote, turned up their noses at the jobs that they did before the plague. There just weren't enough workers around, and the landowners had to compensate with higher wages. We've escaped the devastation of earlier and worse pandemics, but COVID-19 has wrought enormous changes in a very short period of time in how Americans make their livings, particularly when it comes to remote, out-of-office work. Almost overnight, a practice that had once been restricted to a small fraction of workers became ubiquitous with far-reaching implications. Our guest this week, Laurel Ferrer, is one of the nation's leading experts in the practice of remote work, consulting with all types of businesses and creating remote work policies and practices. She joins us to talk about remote work and how, in many ways, what we've experienced over the last year isn't really remote work at all. Laurel Ferrer, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this chat. And we've chatted before, and it's great to be with you again to talk about this this world of working from home, remote working, dispersed workforce. What are some of the other names that we have for to describe uh, <laughs> the phenomenon of the last year? Take your pick. We've got boundaryless, teleworking, telecommuting, distributed work, officeless work. Yeah, that's kind of a, a growing pain, I suppose, of the hyper growth of remote work is we were still so young as a community and as a concept and a model and a community industry, really, that the evolution of shared language and nomenclature really hadn't happened yet. So that's why there's so many words out there is because we really hadn't decided what they were yet. But remote work is essentially the term that everybody's resonating with. Yeah, absolutely. And this happens in a lot of fields where people have different nomenclature. But the whole idea is not working, but not being in an office and having your office somewhere else, probably at home. So the way we like to start this out is to have our guests kind of tell us about them. I want people to understand kind of the context of how you developed your expertise and your in, your interest in this topic and then how it's kind of developed over a lifetime. And especially if there were any like key influences for you in terms of people, teachers, colleagues that really helped you find your professional path. Yeah, that's a, a great question. For me personally, I started working remotely for the first time 15 years ago. It was, I had been in an office managing a hybrid team in the role just prior to that. And so I had been managing remote workers, but I myself was, was in office. And so when I was in a new operations role as you know the VP of, of ops for a small business, we were faced in this critical stage of startup growth in which we needed to conserve funds, of course, and but hire the growing staff that we needed. And we were bootstrapped. And so we were looking for ways to cut costs. And I saw that office and real estate was a great way to do that because we were in the events industry. And so the irony of having an office as an events agency is that you are never in the office. You're always on site. So I said, oh, we're headed into the busy season. Let's just not have an office for the next three months. And then we can get the new big office after that. Over the next busy season, it was it just never came to fruition. We revisited it and we thought we can't afford not to do this. We were 
attracting and retaining such high talent. We loved the flexibility as executives and it was just made it so much more mobile and seemed to fit our industries really well. But that was 15 years ago. It was not cool back then. It was not exciting or innovative or, you know, startup trend. It was terrifying, frankly, especially as a woman-owned small business. We were we didn't tell anybody that we didn't have an office because we would never have been taken seriously. That's ama- that's really amazing. So this would have been 15 years ago, mainly telephone work. You wouldn't have had the audio. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no you would have calls. that video. Yeah. Yeah, no cloud documents. It was just lots of logistical coordination. I can imagine that that would have lent a little more anxiety to all of work, not just relationships with customers, but not to be able to see one another in the process of doing your work, which I think is one of the advantages we have now. Although I don't think that video conferencing really compensates completely for in-person interaction, but I can understand why it would have felt like a high wire act when you were the only ones doing it. And it, the prejudice toward organizations that didn't have a centralized location yeah. is really well, an interesting. Yeah. To be honest, it wasn't really much of an issue for our team. Even with new hires, I saw them when it counted. I saw their results consistently throughout the week. And I saw them on site and I saw their performance when they were you know, providing results and, and coordinating events. And that was always part of the working interview that I saw their performance pre-hire. And so not seeing them day to day really never came up because I always saw their performance and I, they always had access to me. We were always consistently communicating. So yeah, it, it really was a very natural process for our logistical model and our operational model. But that's really where I started consulting just by nature of answering questions, right? Like so many people over the years were like, wait, you don't have an office. Like what, how does that work? And so just answering questions along the way and just building new models and helping people with their organizations, you know, mostly for fun and and just curiosity and research. And then it was about five years ago that that's where I got connected with the startup community and in tech and really found some other organizations that were also working at full distribution, fully virtual, no office space whatsoever. And that's where we really started to incubate the community because I said, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm so excited to learn from you. I've only been doing this for 10 years. And they were like, what? 10 years? I was in middle school. You know? So we're like, oh, okay. So I was able to share experience. They were able to share language. That was the first time I had even heard the term remote work. I didn't have any words for this for a decade. It was just what I was doing. And so that's where we really started the community and said, okay, we got to share knowledge with each other. What are you doing? And what are you doing? And, and you know, how do you solve this problem? And So we built the community of remote work advocates and thought leaders. That's where I was really hungry to consult, to share knowledge in a neutral space. And I was looking for consultancies that would be willing to host a conversation about remote work. I was wanting to build content for them and really wanting to bring this conversation to the corporate world because all of the fully distributed companies were so small at that point. I mean, even now the largest is 1,200 employees and that's just micro. So I was hungry to do that, couldn't find anybody. And so I was like, well, in the meantime, I'll, I'll build Distribute Consulting just as a portfolio piece, if nothing else, so that you know I can have more experience under my belt by the time I do find a consultancy. And 
never did find the consultancy. I've talked to, you know, all of the the big consulting firms in the world was begging them like, please host a conversation about remote work. And they're like, no, 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 it'll never amount to a thing. And here we are. So, so that takes us to 2020, where our tiny little consulting firm launched into the conversation about remote work globally and internationally. And so we've been very honored since then to help as many governments and organizations through the world really understand what it means to operate as a virtual workforce. So give us this, I mean, you may not want to divulge the names of your clients, but you may not have a problem with that. But I'm interested in kind of the range of organizations that you're working with. And I think it's fascinating that you you were like out there kind of looking for others who wanted to work in the space and or were already working in the space and weren't finding them because that's a pretty sweet consulting spot to be in when you are actively looking and nobody else is thinking about it. And there's some demand on the other end. But what types of organizations do you work with and what kind of services do you provide? Yeah. So there's a very, very wide range of services that we provide. Obviously, most people think of us when they're thinking of change management. And so we do help companies, you know, we've helped companies like Vistaprint and Autodesk and Walter B. Moore that really help convert their virtual operational infrastructure from physical to virtual. But then we're also just a collection of remote work experts. And so that expertise comes in handy for things like content marketing and product advisory and and things like that. So on that end of the spectrum, we've helped companies like Logitech and Zoom and Slack and and multiple others. And then even in a third branch, we also do initiatives, strategic initiatives and designing programs and thinking about how can we leverage remote work, not just, you know, enable it to happen, but how can we use this new model to solve major socioeconomic problems? And in that form, we've helped governments like the state of Utah, we built the rural online initiative, which was a program that took virtual jobs to stimulate economic growth in in declining economies in the rural counties of the state. We've helped and advised other economic development initiatives and planned events that help draw awareness and advocacy. So yeah, kind of a little bit of everything. I know that you know my partner in crime on this workforce stuff, Matt Ledger, who's in listening right now on this conversation. And I want to make sure we're going to bring him in here in a minute because he's got some some questions as well. So just one more before I hand this over to Matt. What about sort of the human dimension of remote work in terms of HR policies, supporting teams that are all virtual? There's been some recent reporting on kind of, it's sort of similar to some of the discussion around online schooling where, you know, are we doing enough for a workforce that is mostly remote right now and some of the psychological, emotional supports that they need maybe aren't getting. So I'm curious as to what's the people side of this equation look like? Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of companies and groups have had a very negative first experience with remote work because what's happening right now is not remote work. You know, we talked about this last time when we did the event together that what is happening right now is an international contingency plan for a global catastrophe. This is not remote work as usual, even in the slightest. I've been, like I said, doing this for 15 years, and this year has been very stressful and abnormal for me as well. I've felt isolated. I've felt burned out. Like this is not normal. So 
Yes. Unfortunately, a lot of people are are making the wrong connection of why they're feeling isolated, right? I feel isolated because I'm working remotely. I'm feeling burned out because I'm working remotely. And it's like, yes, that's a factor. But typically remote workers have the opportunity to get out as well. Like you're feeling isolated because you're not just not seeing your coworkers. You're not seeing people. You're not seeing your loved ones. You're feeling burned out because you're working. Yes, you're working more, but you're also worried all the time, literally about life and death circumstances. And you've had a major lifestyle shift and shock in the past year. So we can't attribute all of the problems that we're feeling and all of the stress that we're feeling to remote work. But yes, those problems still do happen, isolation and burnout, if you're not doing it the right way. And so that's exactly why we as advocates and thought leaders and consultants are concerned about the way that people have been exposed to remote work and as a contingency plan is because they never had the opportunity to go through the correct change management process to implement the correct resources that enable and foster that connection and, and all of the resources that we need in order to facilitate remote work in the right way. So yeah, they've had a workplace change, but that's not enough. And so yes, without the proper change management process, the correct policies, the ethical policies, without you know federal legislation, it's not sustainable. And so we definitely want and need to get as many people as possible connected with the correct resources so that they don't think that this is remote work and this is not sustainable because it's absolutely sustainable. It sounds like the difference between disaster response after a hurricane and rebuilding after the hurricane. I want to come back to that, especially around the policy issues that you see. But before we do that, I wanted to make sure that Matt got in here to talk a little bit about his own interest in the topic and then some of the questions he's been thinking about too. Yeah. Hit me, Matt. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, same to you. And, you know, I apologize ahead of time. My cat has been trying to break into this room for the last 15 minutes <laughs> and he knows how to open doors. So at one point he might join us. He will That's join us. Remote working problem. Right there. Say, yeah. This is very one normal territory. <laughs> yeah. And he sometimes yells when he can't get into the room. So you might hear him if not see him. But, you know, one thing I have two questions as a follow up to kind of some of the things you've been saying so far. The first one is you've been doing this for a while now. You, in some sense, it sounds like we're kind of the original hipster when it comes to like getting involved with remote work. You were way ahead of the game. And I'm just curious, like, what drew you to it? Why are you so fascinated by it? And why do you continue to invest your life's work in doing this? That is a very powerful question. And I really appreciate you asking it because there is a lot of misinformation and and a lot of conclusions that are jumped to about remote work, right? That I would advocate for it because I get to sleep in a little bit longer. I could wear whatever clothes I want to or whatever. And it's not like that at all. In fact, I am, you know, a middle-aged woman. And so a lot of assumptions were that I only wanted to work remotely and continue to work from home because I was a mother. And so I hid the fact that I was a mother for the first decade because I was like, no, I want people to hear me as an operations manager, because I sincerely believe that this is a business strategy that every single business, especially small businesses need to know about. This creates so much 
lean spending and agility that are is critical to operational growth, especially in the early stages. And that can have incredible economic benefits for our entire national economy when we're trying to nurture entrepreneurship and we're trying to nurture small businesses. So giving people that power and control in their small business can be incredible. But then also it just increases the control operationally. Even when I got out of small businesses and into startups and larger mid-sized businesses, it was still an incredible opportunity to save so much money, retain and recruit the top talent, no matter where they were. Like This is helping us achieve so many business objectives that we've been trying to solve for decades. So I wanted people to hear me about that and say, look, no, this is a business strategy. But then over that decade, as we, I was talking more and more about you know, the operational benefits, that's really where I started to learn about the socioeconomic benefits and seeing incredible impacts on environmental sustainability and diversity and inclusion and economic development, like we talked about. There's so much potential. I mean, there's small research studies on like how this can impact childhood obesity and home and family dynamics and mental health statuses. Like this is an incredible, incredible resource that we need to not be afraid of. We just need to research it and understand it more so that we can really fulfill those international rewards and benefits. That, that's really fantastic. And I'm glad you kind of walked us through that. And I think the federal government, in some ways, they're trying, they're struggling to find their footing and where's their place in the remote work revolution, right? And I think yeah. a lot of the things you were just referring to back from your own motivations up to all the socioeconomic kind of initiatives you were just talking about is a great place for them. And if we can kind of communicate that message, I think that's a great place. The second follow-up I had was more around, you know, you talked about in 2020 is really where distributed consulting kind of like took off, right? Because the rest of the world, like it or not, joined the revolution with you. And so I'm really curious to hear what it was like to be you and to be in your company when the shutdowns were ordered back in March of 2020. You know, it's, it's a year ago now, reflecting back on it, what was that experience like? And how has that kind of changed a year later? Ooh, we're getting really vulnerable here, aren't we, Matt? I love your questions. So yes, it was not the sunshine and rainbows that everybody expected. You know, I got so many messages and, you know, every single interview was like, oh, well, this must be your time. This is your moment. And that was always hard to hear because it was horrible. It was, I shouldn't say horrible. I should say bittersweet because it was an exhausting year. It was 20 to 22 hour days, seven days a week of interviews and just media consumption over and over and over all day, every day, just as a thought leader, because you know there's only a handful of thought leaders in the entire world. And so we were trying to do our part of you know media interviews and helping people understand what is going on and this isn't you know how to do it the right way. But then also as a business owner, trying to keep my company afloat in this tidal wave of demand. Our inbound leads increased by 6,000% in March 2020. But at the same time, the revenue didn't really increase because, you know, inquiries about I need help converting to remote work and actually paying for that help are two different things. And so it was a mass chaos of making sure that we stayed afloat, that we stayed alive, pivoting all of our services to meet the demands of this new market, especially a hybrid market. 
And then the opportunism of the market, you know, I was literally laughed out of town by large brands like Salesforce and Slack and LinkedIn. When we had talked behind closed doors in 2019, I was saying 2020 is going to be a big year for remote work. We need to be prepared for it. How can I help your workforces? And they said, no, it'll never amount to a thing. And same thing on the federal level as well. Just no, 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 it'll never amount to a thing. And then here we are. Now all of those brands are trying to lead the conversation and trying to be, you know, thought leaders themselves and and they don't have the experience, they don't have the, the credibility. So trying to put down my own ego and put that aside and say, yes, I'm still willing to help you. And let's make sure that we use your channel to get information out in the right way. Let's work together. So yeah, it was it was a definitely a tumultuous year. I mean, I burned out really hard in July, had to take a, a, you know, I'd like to say I was able to take a sabbatical. That was just not realistic. So I took a week off (laughs) and and that was as luxurious as we could get and then have been piecing it back together since then. But yeah, 2021 seems to be a much more stable year, thank goodness. But it's also important to know that this is just recharging for the next wave because going remote actually is the easy conversation. Staying remote is a much, much harder conversation. And so we as a consulting agency are trying to enjoy the calm before the storm because the publicity is going to get much more negative over time as companies start to have these problems from this reactive, non-existent change management process. And they say, well, this isn't working. And we're like, yeah, we know you didn't do it the right way the first time. So let's help you again. So yeah, it's 2022 is going to be the beast, not 2020, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Just so, one last oh, follow-up, Brent, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. What you just said is kind of like a great transition to this next question, which was, you know, how are attitudes towards remote work changing from the business leader perspective from what you experienced prior? I mean, you just said it, you got laughed out of the room in 2019, and then they were calling you this time around saying, please forgive me, help me. <laughs> <laughs> and so is the attitude generally more positive from the business leader perspective about how remote work is going to fit in moving forward now that we've kind of like learned the ropes and been through it? Or is it a little bit more complicated than that? You know, it's a little more complicated because at first there was a lot of people that were saying, and I mean, at first as in like March and April, 2020, they were like, no way. Let's just get back to the office. Right. Very, very resistant. Let's just get back to normal. And then after a few months, there was this ego stroking that had to happen with most executives that were like, oh, well, if I'm saying that remote work isn't possible, then I'm saying that I'm not able to be a successful, credible professional myself while continuing to work this way. So that's when they really started to change their tune of, oh, no, this is possible. And I'm in full support of it. And so that's when they, everybody was kind of climbing over themselves to be thought leaders and like, oh, look at how well we've done. And I look at me, I'm embracing this and I'm so great. And that's fine. We're, of course, we're happy to have, you know, the more the merrier when it comes to advocacy. But then that's where it started to slip into pretty dangerous territory after that of them saying, well, look at us now. We've been doing this for a year. And so we're pros at this. And so now all of these executives are like, we're old hats, like let's write books on, on what experts we are. And it, that's where we as, as you know, ex- more seasoned experience experts have to say, 
you're not to the hard part yet. Like you haven't climbed Everest. You're standing, looking at Everest. Like you're not just getting, getting to the bottom of the mountain is not the same thing as climbing the mountain. So it's a kind of dangerous market in which a lot of brands and, and executives are saying, ta-da, we did it. And they just have no idea. Well, they just don't know what they don't know. And so it's not their fault. It's just a plague of misunderstanding. And overconfidence, which is fairly typical of, or it can be typical of business leaders who've built <laughs> successful organizations. They, they kind of know, I uh, think they know. So I'm curious though, you compared climbing Everest and being at the base camp as opposed to being at the top. What does the top look like? The top looks like very optimized operations, right? So where this is the difference between just having a workplace change, moving your people from an office into, you know, a home office or a co-working space. So changing their location is very different than changing how you operate as an organization and creating a remote first or virtual operational infrastructure and really streamlining workflows and communication channels to accommodate location irrelevance. And that does require big changes to compliance and to digital infrastructure and to workforce training, management training. There needs to be a lot of education and updates that happen internally and operationally in order to make this sustainable. They're not big changes, but they are enough that, again, just like we just said, Matt, right? Like you don't know what you don't know. And so if you don't know what to include in your policy and how to prevent discrimination and what types of discrimination you're most at risk for, you don't know how to prevent them. And so it's really critical to get connected with the community of consultants and experts that have been down this road before. They have been up to the top of the mountain maybe multiple times and they can say, all right, this is how you're going to climb. This is what you need to be aware of, the dangers and risks that are, are probably going to be on the path. And just to humbly learn from people that have done this before. That's really interesting. What would you say are the biggest blind spots for organizations that are starting this journey? The things that they, they've hired you, they want your input, and, and you start talking to them about what, they, what needs to be done. And they go, wait a second, why do we have to do that? Or why is that important? You know, the f- conversation that we always, always start with is, what is your remote work policy like? Because that is a massive solution and very underutilized because that really sets the tone of the conversation and facilitates the conversation of what is it going to take from the employer and the employee to make this work? You know, are you expected to be online at certain times? Are you going to pay for your equipment or are we going to pay for your equipment? Are you going to be allowed to move to a different state or not? Like all of these problems that typically come up can be prevented with a really comprehensive remote work policy. So that's where we always start is like, let's just analyze what decisions you have made and which ones you haven't made, and then make those decisions together and lock them down in a policy right now as a Band-Aid. But then long-term, that's a different conversation. Culture and specifically mid-level management buy-in is the number one barrier to success in the companies that we consult. If the management doesn't understand what their role is as virtual managers, they automatically feel very threatened and very defensive because they're saying, wait a second, you're telling everybody to be self-managers 
then I don't have a job. Like I can't supervise people in the office and make sure that they're in a certain place at a certain time. Oh no, I have the sense of, of loss of security. And so they overreact. And so that is something that, you know, we can make digital tool stacks all day long. We can, you know, make workforce training. We can even provide management training. What we can't do is help create a culture of safety in which people feel connected to each other. They feel valued and appreciated, and they feel that they trust the employer to make a big workplace decision that will benefit them. So we do see a lot of kickback. That's really interesting. I mean, just from my own work experience, these experienced leaders within organizations tend to be that you don't start out at 23 years old as a senior leader, you move up and you develop all these habits of working over a career. And now you're in charge and it's the way we've always done it. And it's the way we are going to do it because this is what I know. And this is what I understand. And then you layer in the technological issues and you've got all sorts of like, oh, I don't think I want to do this or you know, in some cases, it's just like a kind of clinging to an old style of work that is just comfortable. And empathy, too. We developed our management techniques based on what we saw worked, right? We're literally taught to do in college, like you'd be the first one to arrive and the last one to leave. And that's the how they know that you're dependable. Well, what happens when nobody's seeing you come into the office and leaving the office? Like there's a big big gap in just our expectations and our foundational knowledge of what it means to be a professional. So there is a lot of learning to do. And again, that's where it comes back to that culture of safety. If if you've developed and nurtured a culture in which people feel safe enough to learn new things, to try new things, to take risks, to be agile and innovative, that's where we're seeing the greatest rates of adoption in, in our clients and in the market in general. So we think about remote work, at least especially before the pandemic, as it was kind of a privilege reserved for certain types of workers. It wasn't a widespread practice. All of a sudden it is. Have you noted, have problems developed of kind of tensions between workers who work remotely and those who are unable to work remotely for the companies, you know, sort of equity questions within their companies? Is that an emerging issue? Has it been an issue? And then I'm also interested in equity from the standpoint of kind of, I would think that some of this discussion breaks down all along entry level and more senior jobs and whether women and minorities are struggling more in this environment from your perspective. Yeah. So this is a great conversation and another conversation that in which the lines between, you know, what is remote work's fault and what is the pandemic's fault? Those lines are very blurry, right? So Yes, we do see this conversation rising up about the discrimination of frontline workers and manufacturing and, and you know more physical labor jobs and the remote workers that were able to stay home and be safe and what a privilege that was. However, again, in normal circumstances with traditional change management, that would have been a completely different conversation. And there would have been personas that were identified of like, okay, who needs to, who can work remotely, how often, who can't. How can we incorporate more mobility and flexibility into even the on-site jobs so that there is equal employee experience? But because of the emergency status of of the entire decision-making process, it was just instantaneous and like, well, you go home, 
you stay on site and that's now your division. And so there's a lot of backpedaling that we need to do as organizations and as a society to say, hang on, all labor is equal labor. Let's, let's really talk about diversity and inclusion and respect and, and the broader picture of the future of work in general, because remote work is just one branch of the future of work. The future of work really stands on the foundation of employee empowerment. And so, yes, workplace flexibility is one way that we can empower our workers, but there are other ways that we can also empower workers that may not have the opportunity to have workplace flexibility. So, yes, there is a discriminatory conversation happening, but it is something that can be undone with lots of work and lots of communication. So I'm going to turn this back to Matt in a second, but I want just one follow-up question on this. You mentioned earlier sort of policy issues, regulation. That's not something I think in this emergency environment that we've been in that has sort of come up in the public mind around this yet. And I'm really interested on kind of the behind the scenes conversation of what are the legal, regulatory, ethical issues that are waiting for us when we get to the other side of the emergency and have to figure out how to establish the ground rules for remote work in the, in the future? Yeah, this is a much bigger and much messier conversation, right? Like we were talking about organizational change as Everest. This is like taking us to the moon here because <laughs> it's going be, to be a nightmare. The fact of the matter is the majority of our workforce, especially our national workforce right now, is working illegally, period. Like there's just no way around that. So we do wait, have... Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I can't let that go unremarked on. What do you mean we're working illegally? So everything in our employment contract stipulates how the employer is going to take care of the employee and how the employee is going to take care of the employer. And so there are very careful terminology, nomenclature, terms that are set in those contracts that all refer to being in a workplace and performing based on those performance expectations of being in the office or traveling to certain locations. And so all of that has changed. Our performance expectations, our objectives and key results and key performance indicators as, as professionals, as individuals, those have all changed. So essentially, our employment contracts are kind of null and void because what we need to do to perform has completely changed and needs to be redrafted and re-agreed to. But then also the ways in which an employer needs to take care of an employee and vice versa, that has also changed. So yes, you're providing an office, but okay, like what about who needs to pay for childcare? Who needs to pay for internet connection? Is there going to be any discrimination between an employee that is on-site versus off-site? How are they protected if they feel discriminated against? What about taxation structures? If they're living in a different country or a different state, are you responsible for nexus and paying taxes in that state? Like the list just goes on and on and on. Workplace, just OSHA standards alone, right? Occupational safety and health regulations, they're not enforced in a home office, not even a little bit. Most people are working from their beds and from their couches which is causing massive ergonomic problems and will lead to long-term physical and, and mental concerns. Like everything about the structure that we have created around business 
has either intentionally or subconsciously been designed around the idea that we are in centralized locations because that is what we have been doing since the industrial revolution. It was a safe assumption to make. But now all of these regulations need to be impacted. They need to be updated or they maybe need to be rewritten completely in order to accommodate the new mindset that work is something that we do, not somewhere that we go. Is there a tidal wave of lawsuits underway or in terms of people, you know, saying this isn't, you know, I signed this agreement and the terms of it are not being met and now I'm in court. Has that happened? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The the lawsuits have started to trickle a little bit, but by and large, the social understanding is like, hey, it was pandemic, you know, like we're all just doing our best, right? Like there was no, there was no law to protect the employee, but there was also no law to protect the employer. So that's why it's so critical that we need to be as proactive as possible, both in the public sector and private sector in getting legislation rolled out quickly to help prevent future and ongoing problems. Because yes, there is an onslaught of lawsuits coming in the future of, hey, you told everybody to come back to the office. I can't. My kids are still legally required to be virtual students. Childcare is not open yet. And so are you telling me that I'm going to lose my job if I can't go back to, if I don't come back to the office because I have family responsibilities? And that's one of hundreds of scenarios. So yeah, it's going to get messy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when you talk about quick legislation, I start to get antsy just because quick legislation isn't always good legislation. And I, (laughs) I do think this needs some time to ripen and some deliberation around it rather than moving too quickly to update whatever the relevant statutes or create the new statutes that are that are needed. But that's something we're going to be looking at over the next period of time to try to get our minds around what what are the potential legal and regulatory hurdles that we need to get over. Okay. I want to go back to Matt. He's got some additional questions that may be related to this or maybe on a different topic. So go ahead, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Brent. Kind of that exchange you both just had where Brent stopped you in your tracks and was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it leads me back to kind of the key theme of what Brent and I's research has focused on, which is you're starting to see this wave of corporations starting to say, we're going remote forever, or we're going remote for the next couple of years, or we're going to have 50% of our, you know, whatever, by 2030, we'll be all remote. And Brent and I, you know, are trying to raise an ear of caution and say, not so fast. There's a lot we really don't know about this. Mm -hmm. Like, it all sounds great on paper. And, you know, we might be just as productive, if not more than we were when when we were in the office. But there's way more to consider than just that. And as much as we love the concept of remote work, it's not something that should just be rushed into existence because there's long-term impacts and implications that we're just not thinking about. Mm-hmm. when saving money is involved, right? right? Which is often the, the top concern. And so as you've looked back over the last year and even learned probably new things that you didn't even know, you know, what are you thinking about? What are the questions that you still don't have answers to that are starting to pop up in your mind that are going to be top of mind for you moving forward and talking to your, to your client base? Yeah, there are so many things. I mean, like I said, this was such a small conversation. We still had so much work to do in researching and and problem solving and and incubating ideas products that need to be developed like there's so much work to do so my response when people are saying ta-da we're going remote my response is exactly the same like slow down is this the right match for you like 
can your culture handle it? Are your managers prepared to put the work in and make the change in, in their job descriptions? Is it financially responsible for you? Because everybody thinks they're going to save money, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes it can cost you a lot more money based on you know taxation structures and the distribution of your team, the tools that you need. Like Many, many people are coming into this blind and coming into it mostly as a publicity stunt, right? So it is what it is. We just have a lot of work to do, especially in hybrid teams. So that's the dangerous irony of, of everything that's happened and the way that it's happened is pre-2020, you ask any remote work thought leader, our response would always be the same. When asked about hybrid teams, we would say, don't even try. Either go all on-site or all distributed. Hybrid is a really high risk of failure. It is so hard to do well and to do right without discrimination and without future retractions that it's just not worth it. And so we would always say, like, just choose one side or the other. That's where your success rates are going to be. And now we have this world in which the entire world is going hybrid. We do have good case studies, right? Teleworking has existed for half of a century by now. So we do have longstanding case studies. We do have enough research and data to support that the best practices are sound, the best practices are sustainable. We know what we need to do, but it's a matter of getting that information out at scale that that is the impossible challenge in front of us and making sure that companies know how to do hybrid in the right way, it's a pretty terrifying prospect that those of us in the the remote work thought leader circles are just really overwhelmed by on a daily basis. Like, how do we do this? How do we do this? We just see this tidal wave of chaos coming and we don't know exactly how to teach everybody to swim in 15 minutes. Yeah. It just seems like it's such a big problem that like, yeah, everyone's talking about remote work, but they're not talking about that. And that just seems like something on our end that we're like, you know, all of us who are advocating for a remote work future in some capacity are, this is going to come back to bite us once it all goes and hits the fan, right? And we're going to say, well, we told you to slow down, but, you know, here we are, let's fix it. So we're, we're deep in that with you. They're maintaining what they're doing now. So they're thinking like, oh, we'll just keep doing what we're doing now. And it's like, no, you're not working remotely right now. Like you still have so many changes to make. So it's messy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I just have one last question, Brett, and I'll hand it back to you. Laurel, you've been doing this for a while. You've kind of like seen the trends ahead of time. I'm curious about what your quote unquote hot take or bold prediction is about what is remote work going to look like? You see all these tidal wave of issues coming along, but we still know that it can be beneficial if it's done right. So where, where are we going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now with remote work? Yeah. The irony of you know my job title <laughs> as a remote work consultant is that remote work will cease to be a term. It will just be work. So we are already crossed over that tipping point. The projections as they stand now are that at least 35 to 40% of the United States workforce will continue to work remotely at least part-time post-pandemic. So that is very close to the 50% mark. And it's also high enough that employers that are not willing to consider it and will send everybody back to the office are going to be backed into a corner in the war for talent. So if 
they want to retain their top talent and their employees, they're going to have to consider workplace flexibility as an option because now they're put into the position where their employees are saying, well, if you're not going to offer it to me, then I'll go somewhere else that will because now it's easy to find. You know, pre-pandemic, only 3% of jobs were even willing to consider remote work. And now we're at this 35, 40% level. So it's only going to grow as more employers are forced to convert. And so that will just put us into the territory that workplace flexibility is a standard. And so it will just be part of how we work. It will not be a niche or specialized topic anymore. So to kind of bring this to a close, I wanted to ask you a super unfair question, which is what we do, what we get to do (laughs) on podcasts. Matt and I are right now in the beginning phase of trying to put together a survey in partnership with our AEI colleagues in the American. We have a, a research survey group within AEI, and we're interested in understanding experiences of people who went from zero to 60 a year ago in terms of no remote work to all of a sudden remote work became the normal for them. And so we're trying to right now in the process of kind of building out a framework of questions that would help us understand how that shift affected them as workers. As you know, most of the research around this is sort of organizationally focused. How did it affect, how does it affect businesses or government or whoever the sponsoring organization is? So my unfair question is, what should we be asking these workers to help us get at the most critical features of the experience of the last year? You know, so we conduct a lot of these surveys internally with our clients on the organization level. And so we're asking, you know, those questions about like, okay, how has your your experience changed? You know, what was it like at first in month one, month two, month three? How has it changed now? You know, what problems did you have then versus now? Also trying to zero in on problems that actually relate to remote work and not to the pandemic. So that's a critical key. But we always end with the question of something very, very black and white, such as, do you want to go back to the office? Because what happens in the narrative, inevitably, in every survey, every focus group, people are very anxious to complain. They're saying, oh, like, this has been so hard, my kids, and, you know, I'm sitting on a cardboard box. And and so the conditions are so much worse than we anticipate. So that would be another tip of like, be prepared for pretty shocking responses. People are literally sitting on cardboard boxes. That's one side of, you know, keep it wide, but then end it very, very specialized because people are going to complain for the entire survey. But then when you put the ultimatum in front of them of, okay, well, I know that this has been hard for you. Are you wanting to go back? They say, well, absolutely not. (laughs) So (laughs) that's the real question. It was even worse when we were in the office. (laughs) Well, well, hang on. (laughs) Now you're you're just being mean. Ultimately, what we're, we're hearing consistently is people are hungry to get back to the office, but only for social interaction which just means they're hungry for social interaction. So as we help people reconstruct their social lives and their social support networks, that will be less of a concern. And then they'll remember, well, why do I need to go back into the office? Mm. And 
And that's going to be a different conversation. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a really good insight because I, I firmly believe that in a non-pandemic situation, a workforce structured like this in a non-pandemic situation, I think that people would be more engaged, not just, you know, not just they're spending more time with their families or loved ones or, but that they would have more time to engage at the community level as well, you know, and to socialize and to do a lot of things that we've, you know, we've been talking about for decades now about the time crunch that, that families face, how difficult it is to maintain involvement in community organizations. If you're, you know, working 10 hours a day and then you're supposed to go to the PTA meeting and then you're supposed to do Cub Scouts, it's hard. And so I wonder, and I think you've made this point several times very well, like, let's tease these issues apart and talk about remote work separately from the conditions imposed on us by the pandemic. So really very, very helpful. You've been so generous with your time and sharing your expertise. You know, you are not a client of AEI and we appreciate you donating your your expertise and, and the hours of your day to helping us understand this better. My pleasure. It's true advocacy. That's wonderful. Okay. And we will have you on again in a few months to sort of check in and see how it's going. Yeah, definitely going to be a different story by then. So (laughs) I appreciate it. This will be an ongoing chat. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.